This is the second week of our Christmas series here where we're looking at different ways where we can experience God's presence in different seasons of life. And each week, we start with a core verse out of the New Testament that is foundational to this idea of God with us. And it's really foundational to Christmas as well. It's Matthew 1, something familiar to a lot of people. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that's, that's called the incarnation. What it means is that God became flesh and dwelt among us. And the hope of the incarnation isn't just that God is with us when Jesus came to earth. But the hope of the incarnation is that God is still with us today. And that's part of why Christmas is such a joyous celebration. Now last week, we talked about God with us in the valley. And I shared with you this idea. We may enjoy God on the mountaintops, but we get to know him intimately in the valleys. Now today I want to talk about another metaphor out of Scripture. And that's God with us in the wilderness. Now, when we think of wilderness, maybe you think of something like this. Beautiful trees, like up north, boundary waters, hiking and canoeing and fishing. And Now, I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to experience God in this type of wilderness. But back in Bible times, this isn't what the wilderness looked like. This was more like the wilderness. The wilderness was a deserty, rocky wasteland. So how do we experience God in the wilderness? You see, the wilderness is a barren place. It's a dry place. It's desolate where you feel lost and tired. And see, the wilderness is different than the valley because the wilderness usually lasts a lot longer. One of the images that is often associated in the Bible with the wilderness is wandering. There's this wandering. It's a journey, a long journey with no end in sight. And you wonder when it's going to be over. You're wandering. And you're wondering if you'll ever get out of the wilderness again. Now see, some of you might be in a wilderness right now. And you're feeling the weight of it. Some of you are stuck in a job you don't like. Or the pay is terrible. Or your boss, your coworkers are hard to deal with. And you're trying to decide, do I go back to school? Do I stay at this job? If I go back to school, then I have student loan debt. And then we're just piled on with more debt. And you're stuck in this place and you just don't know what to do. Some of you, some of you, your marriage isn't going very well. And maybe it's been months or even years and the house is tense, you know the kids know, they feel it. You're fighting all the time, and you're just tired of it. You're tired, and you just want to give up on it. 
or maybe, maybe you're struggling with a chronic health issue. And no matter what you do, it never seems to get better. Or maybe you're not making great healthy choices, and you feel the guilt for not doing your part to deal with your chronic health issue. Or, or maybe you just feel lost. You don't know what you want to do with your life. Your parents are pressuring, your, pressuring you to do certain things and be certain ways, but your heart is pulling you in another direction, and most days you just want to sit in bed and binge Netflix all day, and you just feel lost. Those are all wildernesses, and some of you are going through those right now. You're in the wilderness, and you don't know when it's going to end. And you're asking the question of the wilderness, where is God? Where is God in my wilderness? Well, the good news, there's no shortage of wilderness stories in Scripture. In fact, we see all kinds of people from Old Testament to New Testament who spend time in the wilderness, some by their own fault, some by no fault of their own. And every time, every time, God meets them in the wilderness. So there are two things about wilderness. When you, when you read through the wilderness stories of Scripture, there are two things that stand out. First, the wilderness is a dangerous place. The wilderness is scary. Whenever someone ends up in the wilderness, bad stuff is going on. See, you, you never, in Scripture, you never read, they ran out into the wilderness and encountered a herd of tiny ponies. You never read that. <laughs> it always goes bad because that is not what the wilderness is about. The wilderness was a place marked by threats of death, rebellion, punishment. It was seen where evil spirits lived. They, they didn't live in the cities. They lived out in the wilderness. And therefore, it was a place marked by temptation and sin. It was a dangerous place. But there's a second thing that, is, that the wilderness is marked by. When we read the wilderness stories in Scripture, wilderness is a place where people experience God over and over again, consistently. People experience God. They experience His help, His guidance. They experience His, pre his presence, often His voice. It's a place of worship. It's a place of sanctuary. It can also be a place of covenant promises that God makes in the wilderness. So why are these two things, how can these two things happen together? It's a dangerous place, but it's a place of, of experiencing God. There's a reason these two things are so connected. Why is it that wildernesses are a place of struggle, but it's a place of faith in experiencing God? And the reason is this. Your deepest need becomes a gift when it drives you to depend on God. Your deepest need becomes a gift when it drives you to depend on God. And that's what happens in the wilderness. 
that's what happens. So today I want to show you, I, I want to show you a story. A story from the Old Testament about this, how this was lived out in a very real way. It's out of 1 Kings. It spans three different chapters. We're only going to read some of, some of the stuff out of 19. But I'm going to summarize 17. But first I'm going to get a drink. So this is the story of a prophet named Elijah. And... <laughs> So this is a guy, Elijah, this is a guy who experienced the mountaintop experiences of God. This is a guy who had amazing faith and amazing power from God. But he also experienced the depth of pain and sorrow. So to give you a little context, go back to about 860 BC, and there was a king named Ahab. And he was a horrible king. He was an evil king. He was not a good guy. In fact, the Bible describes it, describes him as this. He did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any king before him. Dang, how do you like that to be your description? This was the worst CEO this company has ever had. This person made worse decisions than anybody else in our family for all generations. <laughs> like, like, that is rough. But it's true. Ahab was a horrible, evil king. And then Elijah came onto the scene as a prophet of God, one who spoke for God. And immediately, he got himself in trouble. First thing he did was he announced that there was going to be a a, um, a drought, a drought and famine in the land as punishment. God was going to punish King Ahab with a drought. Obviously, Ahab was not happy about this, threatened Elijah. Elijah fled. He ran off into the wilderness. So this was the first time he ran off into the wilderness. God miraculously provided him food and water. God miraculously, miraculously provided him a place to stay. With, with a widow. And in fact, even during that time, he raised a boy to, back to life. This widow's son died. He raised him back to life. This is a man who was full of faith and experienced God. And worked, the power of God worked through him. So then, then as if that wasn't enough, on, on a well-known mountain back then called Mount Carmel, he faced a thousand prophets of Baal and Asherah, who were two of the foreign pagan gods that Ahab worshipped. He faced down a thousand of these prophets, called fire from heaven, defeated them, and had them all executed. So, yeah, this, this, was, this was no snowflake lily in the meadows. This was a tough, powerful man of God. Now, this last one, killing the prophets of, of Baal and Asherah, this is the one that really got him in trouble. This really upset Ahab. But even worse, it upset his wife, Queen Jezebel. Now, she was a real piece of work. Ahab was the worst, most evil king that Israel had seen up to that point. Queen Jezebel made Ahab look like a Boy Scout. She immediately put a hit on Elijah's life. In fact, she even sent a message to Elijah by courier saying, you will be dead by tomorrow morning. 
By this time tomorrow, you're dead. Seriously, it sounds, like, it sounds like a mob hit out of the Old Testament. You're dead. Your family's dead. Your goldfish, dead. Your houseplants, dead. They're all dead. <laughs> I'm like, whoa. <laughs> but that's how upset she was. Okay, now, here is a guy who stood up to a wicked king who faced down one guy versus a thousand prophets of pagan gods. And the moment a woman got angry, he did the only smart thing. He ran. <laughs> that is a smart man. <laughs> he ran. Because <laughs> as any man knows, the minute you get a woman angry, that is not a fight you are going to win. So he ran. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 19. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And now, he didn't just run. He went Forrest Gump. Okay, he ran. So this town Beersheba, this was about 125 miles away. He didn't just run around the corner. <laughs> he just kept running. And then he went another day's journey, so that's another 20 to 30 miles out further out into the wilderness. And then, and finally, finally he could rest. He felt some either exhaustion or safety, we don't know, but he stopped. And then we see this really painful moment with Elijah. We could see the heartbreak. We could feel how heavy it is. This is like New Avengers trailer heavy here. Right here. And here's, here's what happened next. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Did you know that one of the heroes, the faith giants of Scripture, contemplated suicide? It's right there. It's one of the few times we see that in all of Scripture. And there he is. He contemplated suicide. And so if you've ever had those thoughts, if you've ever wondered if your life would be better if it would end. Know that God was with Elijah and God is with you. You are not alone. So Elijah ran into the wilderness, hightailed and ran. He was alone, tired, scared, exhausted, and desperate. And he said those words that so many of us have said. I'm done. I just can't go on. I've got, I've had enough. I've had enough of this job. I've had enough of this marriage. I've had enough of this family. I've had enough of this church. I just can't take it anymore. 
He trusted God, fought the good fight, had courage and faith, and now he's at the end of his rope. So what does God do? Here's what happens. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back to him a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. God took care of him. God provided for him. Sometimes the most holy thing you can do is allow God to take care of you. Have something to eat and take a nap. So parents, you can use that one next time your kid's just driving you nuts. I'm going to go do a holy thing. I'm going to go take a nap. <laughs> Lock yourself in the bathroom if you have to, whatever you have to do. Have something to eat and take a nap. I love that God didn't berate him. He didn't shame him, guilt him, lecture him. He let him rest in God's presence. And so that's what Elijah did. So he got up, ate, and drank. Strengthened by his food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights till he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Some of you, God is saying that exact same thing to you. What are you doing? You know better than this. You, you have access to me. What are you doing? What are you doing running away from people? What are you doing running away from me? For some of you, God's saying that to you today. What are you doing? Now, at this point, Elijah, you could tell Elijah wasn't all back to, back to his old self because he started to get whiny. Okay? Parents, do you have kids who get whiny? Kids, do you have parents who get whiny? Okay, come on. We know you get whiny. So he starts to get whiny, and, and he starts complaining. And so here's, he goes, uh -huh, uh, but Elijah replied, uh, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites rejected your covenant. They tore down your altars. All of a sudden, I turned into a valley girl. Yeah, and they put the prophets to death with the sword. Oh, my God. Okay, um, and I'm the only one left, and nobody loves me, and now they're trying to kill me, and everyone hates me. No, he just gets whiny. Now, see, here's the thing. This, his little whine, his little temper tantrum, it isn't even 100% true. All of this is exaggerations of what's going on. And don't we all do that when we whine? We, we don't lie flat out because people can see through lies. We just embellish the truth a little bit to make it look beneficial to us. And that's what Elijah did. He kind of stretched the truth a little bit to get pity, to, to see himself as a victim. So God would be like, oh, I'm so sorry. Here, have a cookie. Okay. 
So, so here he is. He's, he just, he starts going down into this pity party of just spiraling. And if, if you spiral, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It starts small and then just gets bigger, and you just end up spiraled down to the floor. That's what Elisha did. So thank God that he doesn't respond to us like we respond to whiny people. Because we just, oh, shut up. No, <laughs> I would never say that. That's mean. Okay. I just think that. <laughs> okay. So, so, he, so God says, okay, let me give you what you really need. The food and the rest was good, but let me give you what you really need. Now, Elijah was in a cave right now. God calls him, come out of the cave. I'm not going to let you sit in your little whiny self-pity party cave right Come on out of the cave. And Elijah comes out. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart. And shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. Earthquake, mighty winds, fire, earth, wind, fire. Yeah, that was God's idea. There you go. All of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, all you millennials, just Google it. Then you'll get the joke. Okay? But yeah, so God, but God was not in the earthquake. He was not in the wind. And he was not in the fire. He was in the whisper. What was amazing was after that, Israel, God gave instructions to Elisha on how to restore Israel with a new king, a righteous king, and God-fearing people. But you see, there's something strange about this passage. If you're familiar at all with other times God shows up in the Old Testament, God regularly shows up in earthquakes, in wind, and in fire. In fact, that's his normal way of showing up in the Old Testament, was through earthquakes, with, through mighty displays. Why wasn't God in the earth, wind, and fire? Where, what changed? Because that was his normal way of speaking to his people. What changed? Well, God was in the whisper. Or the old King James describes it as the still, small voice. The gentle whisper. So why is it, why is it when life is so hard, God's voice seems so quiet. Why is his voice so small? If God wants us to hear him, why doesn't he speak louder? Why doesn't he speak in big displays of power like wind, earthquakes, and fire? Why does God speak in the whisper? Well, I'll tell you why. God whispers because he's close.
God whispers because he's close. And when he whispers, he says, I love you. He says, I am still with you. He says, you are my beloved. He whispers because he's close. He says, don't give up. Don't rely on your own strength. Rest in me. I love you. You are my adopted son, my adopted daughter. You are royalty. God whispers because he's close. He says, I am with you in the valley. I am with you in the wilderness. I am with you in the storms. Because that's what Elijah needed to hear. Elijah didn't need to be convinced of God's power. He had lived God's power. He needed to be convinced of God's presence. So God said, come on out of your cave. Come on out. Come on out of the darkness toward me. I'm not going to shout. I'm going to whisper. Because Elijah, I am close. And for Elijah, for him in the wilderness, that's what he needed most. He needed that most in that moment, in his sorrow, in his depression, in his suicidal thoughts. He needed to know that God was there in the wilderness. God knows what you need. He knows what's going on. When you're lost in the wilderness... You want to give up. You want to throw in the towel. Maybe you want to end it all. You need to know he is close. That's why he whispers. So if your heart is hurting today from the wilderness that you're in and you're wondering when it will ever end, and if you, if you feel heartbroken and you're wondering where is God, I'll tell you where God, where God is. Well, even better, God will tell you where God is. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Why does God whisper? Because he's close. He's close enough to reach out to hold your hand. He has plans for you to bless you, to prosper you. He has a hope. He has a future. You are valuable to him. You are precious to him. You are cherished by him. 
He loves you so much that he sent his son, Jesus, to be a baby in a manger and to eventually die for you in your sorrow, in your wilderness. And now, if you believe in him, his spirit dwells in you. You are not alone. God is with you. God is close to you. Even when you are far away, God is close. So why does God whisper? Because he's close. And then one day, you'll discover that your deepest need has become a gift. Because it has driven you to depend on God. Join me in prayer. God, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. And, and around Christmas here, we celebrate that. We celebrate the baby that he was born. And we celebrate the incarnation. God, thank you that you love us so much you didn't want us to, to spend an eternity apart from you. And instead, you wanted, you wanted a relationship with us now and forever. And so you solved the problem that we cannot solve, that of our sin and our failure. And so we thank you for that. God, and we thank you that it, during our hard times, during our sorrow, during our brokenness, during our loneliness, during our wildernesses, you are still there. Just like you were with Elijah. Just like you, were, you have been with, with people throughout the centuries. You are still there. You are with us. You are with me. Lord, I pray a special prayer for all those who are going through a wilderness right now. And I pray that you can whisper everything about you, everything about who they are to you and whisper because you're close to them. You promise that, that you are close to the brokenhearted. So we claim that promise, we call upon that promise for all those who are broken today, for all those who are lonely, who, for all who feel like failures, who, for all who want to give up. I pray your love and your presence on them today. And in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.